You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Oh God, we offer this prayer and song, uh, and we pray that it would be true, that you would be our vision. Lord, we want to see Jesus. And so we pray that through your word, actually looking at Jesus in your word and hearing his voice, I I pray, Lord, that each heart would encounter Jesus in a trusting way, that we'd be convicted of sin, and that our hearts would turn towards you in repentance and faith, that we might have eternal life, that you might be our vision forever. We ask these things uh, in your name. Amen. You can be seated. And we will be in Matthew chapter 5. We're getting ourselves ready to go into the Sermon on the Mount and uh, the most famous speech of all time, perhaps. And uh, I want to point you to a uh, picture of uh, another famous speech. Let's see if you can recognize it. Here we go. There we go. You recognize this one? Some have said that the I Have a Dream speech is the uh, most famous speech of the 20th century, given on August 28, 1963. Uh, at the the mall in Washington, D.C., a huge gathering of people, and he's the final speaker of the day. After hearing uh, Malia Jackson sing a song, uh, who's a close friend of Martin Luther King Jr., he gets up to speak. And he knows the magnitude of the moment. He knows the things that he has been working for. And, uh, and he wants this speech, he said the night before, I want this to be a bit like the Gettysburg Address. One of those resounding notes that really changes the course of this nation. And so he goes into this remarkable speech, and he does not plan to use the I Have a Dream line at all. He had used that in some other speeches. His, the guy that he was working with on the speech, his speech writer, his coach, his, you know, his buddy, uh, said, that is so cliche and cheesy. Don't use the I Have a Dream thing, all right? Like, that's just not going to play here. And so he has this speech, and in the background, this singer, this Malia Jackson, begins crying out behind him while he's speaking. Tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And so eventually he just sets the notes aside and then goes into the most famous four minutes of the speech, which is his I have a dream. And then he just goes extemporaneously from that. And that's the part that we remember is that him kind of seizing the moment, hearing the voice behind him, seeing the crowd in front of him, and in the moment his heart pouring out. And that's what we remember. We remember the part that actually wasn't particularly planned, but in the moment came forward. Uh, King had something he wanted to say, and when prompted, it spilled forth from his heart these famous words, and they're the words that we remember. And uh, a survey not too long ago asked people what they thought of the speech, and uh, uh, in terms of its relevance to this generation, 68% of Americans said that yes, even today, this speech still is relevant to people. 76% of blacks, 67% of whites and only 4%, even all these years later, are unfamiliar with it. So it's still, it's one of those speeches that have lasted for a long time. Um, and so these are great words that were spoken that shifted a nation, that changed some hearts, that gave a, a rallying cry to a movement. And how much more so the greatest sermon by the greatest preacher who ever lived, which is Jesus Christ. His sermon, given in a moment, prompted by what he saw in front of him, pouring forth from his heart, gave the the most famous sermon in the world, a mission for his people, a movement, a cause that he is now speaking into as these people are gathered around him on this mountainside on the edge of Galilee. 
and he gives these words. And what I want us to do is spend the bulk of our time in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read all the way through 12. We'll dip our toe a little bit in the Beatitudes. But before we get into the bulk of the speech, I want us to spend a little bit of time this morning thinking about who is delivering this speech, Jesus. We looked at that a little bit last week, but I want to spend a little bit more time because as we get into this speech, I, I think what, what's going to happen is we're going to get into the weeds of the kingdom and what does he mean by turn the other cheek and have I committed this sin and how could I live up to this? And I think that we can end up losing our sight of the one who is preaching this. We can lose sight of the Jesus who is giving us this message and his intention in his heart. So I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about Jesus and his heart that leads him to deliver this message, okay? And we want to never forget that as we study this message, that this is coming from the heart of Christ as a gift to his people. And so if you would open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we'll start in verse 1. Uh, there's Bibles underneath the chairs if you don't have one with you. In the brown Bibles, it's page 809. In the more reddish burgundy Bibles, it's page 994. Um, and so would encourage you to open up, turn on, flip on, scroll up, whatever, uh, and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, I, uh, maybe I'm just old school, but I'm still a fan of kind of the paper Bibles um, and would always encourage you to consider that, not that I'm ever against the screens. But what I love about a Bible, a paper Bible, is this can only be one thing. My screen can be whatever it want, I want it to be. Like it can be God's word one minute, but then it could be something sinful and awful the next minute. But when I come to this, it can only be one thing, right? This paper is dedicated to carrying the words of God, and I kind of want my life to be one thing, right? And so coming to God's word in that way. So just a little appeal that maybe consider paper once in a while, although I'm not anti-screen, so don't misunderstand me. But uh, that was just a side. That was just a freebie today. So Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read through verse 12, and then we'll, uh, we'll dig into it. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, again, I just want to focus particularly on those first couple of verses and give a bit of an extension of the introduction to last week, and then we'll kind of get into, get ourselves set up to hit the Beatitudes next week. And uh, as we, like I said, as we get into the weeds of this sermon, I think we're going to forget, we're going to forget the heart of Jesus. We're going to be tempted to forget the tone and the setting that this is being delivered in. You remember back in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is preaching the message of the kingdom in all of these towns. And people, and he's healing diseases, and he's extending grace, and he's casting out demons, and people are beginning to follow him. And so his gracious ministry among them is drawing this crowd, and they're from all these different cities. They're from all these different places, all these economic backgrounds, and they're gathering around him. And then Jesus sees them and then responds. He responds from his heart to give these people grace, to give them direction, to give them teaching, to give them correction. 
And I think we need to remember that Jesus came for his people. That's actually the title of this message. I think there's a a different title in your bulletin because I changed it last minute after the bulletins were printed. But Jesus came for his people. I think we we sometimes forget that God came to us. That God in heaven, holy and righteous, came to sinners to gather a people. And now when he is beginning to gather them, what does he do? What does he do? So we need to not forget that Jesus came for his people. Matthew 1, 21 tells us that she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. So part of this sermon is to show people that when he saves them from their sins, where he's taking them, the kingdom he's bringing them into. We also read in Matthew 4:17 from that time Jesus began to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand the gift of the kingdom has come to sinners to his people Jesus is coming to gather his people so God has come in the flesh he's come to deliver people from their biggest problem which is sin and to bring them into a new kingdom not to just set them off as free agents in the world but to bring them into a kingdom with a purpose with citizenship with a, into a family and a nation under a king and he will provide for them The king has come to give us a kingdom, and what an undeserved grace that is. We don't deserve a kingdom. We deserve condemnation. We deserve banishment from the kingdom, and yet God has come. And this call to repent is an act of grace. The fact that he would die and rise again so that we might be saved from our sins and be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and enabled to repent is a marvelous thing. And that even the fruit of repentance that we're going to see in this sermon are a gift of his grace. So let's see this sermon, even in all of its hard words, all of its challenging words, as an outflow of the good king who came to us, who is giving us grace. Even in his call to repentance, which is not always easy, doesn't always feel good, is an act of grace, and that he would enable that by his spirit, and that he would produce that fruit in us. And so, before we begin, let's take our time today to nail down in our minds exactly who is speaking and why. And what's flowing from the heart of the king when he has his people gathered in front of him? So very two simple points today. One is Jesus sees his people and gathers them, verse 1. Jesus speaks to his people and blesses them, verses 2 and 3. Very simple. You could have come up with this outline. This is what all of those dollars of seminary are paying for right now is these simple observations. But it's the simple stuff. It's the obvious stuff. If we miss the obvious stuff, we'll screw up stuff. We'll screw up our lives. You know that. You know that in your job, that neglecting the simple stuff creates big problems, right? That's true when it comes to God's Word. So let's not overlook the simple stuff as we get into the more complex stuff in the sermon. Let's not forget who is speaking to us and why. Jesus sees his people and gathers them. Jesus speaks to his people and blesses them. So let's look at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So, I think this is amazing. Jesus is paying attention to the people. He sees them. He's the kind of king that sees the people. Doesn't just see his agenda, doesn't just see the enemies, but he sees his people. He knows them. He knows who they are. He sees them, and he sees them rightly. He's the one king that can see rightly. He knows exactly what's going on in their hearts. He knows exactly what's going on in their lives. He knows their sin. He knows their struggles. He knows their failures. He knows their limitations. He knows how they've screwed up. He probably can see them screwing up right in front of him in terms of how they're treating each other and how they're responding to him. And so you wonder, what is going on in the heart of Jesus as he sees rightly? He sees everything that's going on. What is 
bubbling up in the heart of Jesus. I just wonder, like, if you could see what Jesus could see in all of its ugliness, what would be your response in the, if you're up on the mountain looking at the people? What do you think of when you look out at the world? You look at the state of the church. You look at other Christians in the body. You look at this church. What bubbles up in your heart? Uh, if I'm honest, sometimes it's anger, right? Why can't these people get it together, right? Disappointed, look at the world, look at, look at the church, look at the American church. Disappointed, frustrated, those are all would be justifiable responses to looking at God's people and their condition. But what does Jesus think and feel when he looks at his people? We aren't told Jesus' thoughts directly here, but it's fascinating to go through the book of Matthew and look at when the phrase Jesus saw the crowds and what happens. Let me just point out a couple to you because Jesus' relationship to crowds is sort of a unique thing in the book of Matthew. Matthew seems to highlight that from time to time. Matthew 9. We have a very similar type of setting of this large crowd that Jesus has been doing ministry with, and then he looks at them, and we actually get a peek into his heart in Matthew 9, 35 through 38, very similar situation. Looks like, here's what it says, Matthew went throughout the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. It's almost a repeat of Matthew chapter 4. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The word compassion there is splagidzomai. I don't know if I said that exactly right, but that's fun to say, right, kids? So there you go. It's literally, it's a very visceral term, which is like his stomach turned. Like when he saw the condition, like there was a physical, like his stomach just ached. You know the phrase, my heart goes out to you? That's the idea of the, the word is that his bowels turned within him. Like this kind of sense of like, ah, oh, he feels it in his gut when he sees the condition of his people. Now, we might expect him to be, you know, angry at them, like wagging the finger. Why can't you get it together? And that's not actually what it talks about here. Now, there's obviously a holiness that Jesus has, and he calls people to repent of their sins, no doubt. But I think it's important for us to see and heal, hear and feel the heart of Jesus. And why? It says, because, verse 36, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He has such they're so fragile. You think of sheep. Sheep have no natural defenses. They're delicious. They're just easy prey, right? They're so helpless. And Jesus looks at his people and goes, they need a shepherd. And the shepherds that they've had, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, have not shepherded them well. And they've been left vulnerable. They are harassed. Skulo in Greek, troubled. They're in trouble harassed. They're in trouble. They're in danger, both within their own sin and without predators from the outside. And they're helpless. The word ripto, which means dejected. They're helpless. They're broken. They're in trouble. They're ravaged by sin, brutalized by predators, deceived by false teaching, burdened by life, overwhelmed by afflictions, and destined for eternal destruction. Just looks out on the people, and his heart is filled with compassion. 
he aches inside for the condition of his people, and then it motivates him to act because then he speaks to his people, he speaks to his disciples and say, says, do you see what I see? Do you feel what I feel for the people? And now I'm going to need you to go to them and bring the words of Jesus to them, right? It's an amazing thought. Matthew 14, verses 13 through 15, we have another encounter of Jesus in the crowds. When they heard this, Jesus, when they, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from them in a boat to a desolate place. And when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the town. So the people are so desperate for more Jesus, they're just like chasing him down. Even when he wants to kind of be by himself, the crowds just are like, they got to get more Jesus. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Again, we have that word compassion. So this is not, this is not a one-off. This is Jesus' disposition towards his people. Matthew 15, 32, when Jesus called his disciples to them and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and they have nothing to eat. And then the feeding of the 5,000 happens. So you just have this sense that Jesus has a heart for his people. He has compassion. So when he sees, what does he see? He sees all of the mess. He sees every bit of it. And his heart is drawn to do something about it. He's drawn to them. His heart is with his people. That's amazing that we would have a king like that, that we would have a king whose heart is inclined towards us, even in our sin. And he gathers them, the second part of that first phrase. He sees them, and then he gathers them. So he sees them in all of their mess, all of their sin, all of their need, all of their brokenness, and he doesn't push them away but calls them near because it says he went up on a mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him. Now, this is a, a signal to go up on the mountain. He wants to be able to be seen by all the people so they can see him where he is. And this is what a rabbi would do. A rabbi would sit when he is ready to teach. It's a signal that when a rabbi, a respected rabbi, sits down, that he is ready to teach and he wants everyone's attention. Now, it's totally reverse of how we do it because the rabbis, they would sit and the audience would stand because the audience is to be putting in the work to learn the teaching. And the, the rabbi would sit in kind of this place of authority. So we should be switching this. I should be sitting down. You should be standing if we were going to be biblical. But let, I'll, we'll let it slide this time. But that's what he's doing. He's getting up on a mountain so he can see, and the people would stand in respect to hear the teaching from the rabbi. And the rabbi would go as long as the rabbi wants to go. And the people would receive his teaching with authority. And so they know that when he goes up on the mountain and then he sits down, that he wants his people to come near and he wants their attention. He sees their condition and then he draws them near. I have something for you. I have something for you. Now, this, in the Greek, this went up on the mountain. If you then take that to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, there's three times where this exact phrase happens. And it's all in the book of Exodus, speaking of Moses going up the mountain to meet with God so that then he can bring a word to the people. So what we have here is we have a bit of a, a, a connection between Moses and Jesus. That Jesus, you remember early in the book of Matthew, was almost put to death as a baby, but God delivered him. Well, that's like Moses, right? The deliverer of his people was almost put to death, and then he was brought out. Jesus goes through the waters and is, and is delivered. Moses leads the people through the waters. So you have this picture of a new deliverer, a new Moses, leading his people out of the Egypt of sin, and bringing them into a new place. And we have this exact phrase that I think Matthew is using intentionally to show that Jesus is going up. He's a Moses-like character leading a new people, a new exodus. And now he's about to give them 
the new instructions of the new people of God. If we were to go to Exodus chapter 19, this is one of those spots where that phrase is used. And I do think that he is, uh, Matthew is trying to show us that there is a connection, there is an echo here, that in the Old Testament, a people was gathered by God, delivered out of sin, and then given instructions on how to live as, an, as a people of God. Now Jesus comes out, spending time in the desert, defeating the evil one. Now he's got this new people, and he's giving them instruction. He goes up on the mountain, and let me just read the, the account from, Matt, from Exodus chapter 19. Uh, where this same phrase, going up on a mountain to sit. It's not just a logistical thing. It's arranged in such a way to help us think back to when this has happened before with this people of God. And listen to this. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured people from among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words of the Lord that he had commanded them. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So, my point there just being that Jesus is like this new Moses figure. This is, like, this is a new people of God that is being assembled, that is being delivered, that is being taught with a new and better Moses named Jesus. And he's doing Moses-like things, like going up on the mountain and then speaking with authority to his people, giving them comfort and showing them what this new people, what this new relationship begins to look like. And so he gathers them. So we see there point one, Jesus sees the people, and with great compassion he draws them near. He gathers them. Now, in Jesus' perfect estimation, like he is perfect, like he knows exactly what to do in this moment. He sees the needs of the people. And what does he then determine that they most need from him, that they most need for their souls, that they most need for their lives, looking at all the things that, are, that they're facing, all the struggles that they have, all the sins that they have, what do they most need? Do they need more miracles? Do they need more money? Do they need more time in their schedule? Do they need less stress in their jobs? Do they need healed bodies? Do they need a better government? No, in the end, they need his teaching. They need his teaching. These are all great things, but what Jesus gives them here in response to what he sees is they need his word. They need his word. They need teaching from his mouth. They need the word of God. And so that brings us to point two, verses two and three. Jesus speaks to his people and blesses them. So he takes in the scene calculates what it is that they most need, draws them near, and then what they most need is his word. They need his word. They need a blessing from him because he's going to start the Sermon on the Mount with blessing. Nine of them. Blessed, 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 blessed. They need a blessing from their king. That is what they most need more than they need healing, more than they need more money, more than they need cheaper gas, more than they need different political leaders. They need his word, and they need his favor. They need his blessing. Jesus speaks to his people. God always creates his people by his word. God has always been a speaking God. God is always created by his word. Let's just think about just one chapter earlier in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is being tempted. He's at his physical weakness. He's been fasting for 40 days. He's on the verge of physical death. He's the weakest physically that he can be. He's in the desert. 
He's going one-on-one with Satan. And what is the one thing that he uses to fight back? The Word. Scripture. He could do miracles. He could do tornadoes. He could do, he could do all this stuff to defeat Satan. And he quotes the Bible. He quotes Scripture. When Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, It is, not ri- it is, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What Jesus needed most after 40 days of fasting was not bread, but God's Word. Right? Teaching us something there. When we go to Luke chapter 24, when Jesus rises from the dead and he meets with them disciples on the road to Emmaus, what does he begin to do? He begins to preach, begins to teach. He gives them his word. Now, he could show them his hands. He could kind of levitate. He could do some magic tricks with some cards. He could do some things to persuade them that he's the Christ, right? He could do really marvelous things. He could make a, a fountain sprout out of the ground. He could rearrange the cosmos. He could, he could write his name, I am the Messiah, <laughs> like in the stars. But what he does is he goes, I need to teach you the Old Testament. And listen to what they say after they spend this long walk with Jesus. They're, 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 they, it isn't until he then leaves them that they then realize. And look at Luke chapter 24, verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us when he what? Levitated in front of us? When he made our arm grow back, you know, because it was, well, you know, he healed that. He healed people. I don't know if they had all the arms they needed, but you get my point. He he, it wasn't, he didn't change our circumstances. He taught us the word, and our hearts burned within us. Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 1 Corinthians says, Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ. Crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly of Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So, preaching is not often valued by others out there. The Word of God is not always valued, but it is the power of God, is the point. I love what Peter says in 2 Peter 1, because he's talking to some people, and he's, he's kind of talking about his credentials, and here's what he says in, verse chapter, in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 19. For we did not follow clever, cleverly devised myths... When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, speaking of the transfiguration, Peter's going, I was there when Jesus was transformed into his glorified state. There was only a couple of us that saw that. I was there for that. We were eyewitnesses of that. For when he received glory and honor from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard his very voice born from heaven, and we were with you on, with him on the holy mountain. So he's going, we experienced and were eyewitnesses of great things, but then he grounds their faith in this. But we, verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully committed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So here's the point of that. He's saying, don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah simply because some guys said that they saw him on the mountain. Believe it because the Scriptures teach it. Believe it because the Bible, the whole Bible is about Jesus. Now, their eyewitness becomes part of the Bible as well, so we don't have to choose one over the other. But Peter is telling them that, like, it's the Scriptures, it's the Word of God that you need more than anything. 
So if we're God's people and we see all the needs that we have around us, all the things that our church needs, our church could use more money, our church could use more volunteers, our church could use this, our church, more than anything, needs the words of Jesus to us. That's what the world out there needs more than anything else. This is what Jesus did. He sizes up the situation and goes, they need my words. They need my words. The miracles are great, but only to the extent that they receive and believe my word. So what do we most need from Jesus? It's not miracles. It's not money. It's not more time or less stress. It's not better kids, a more organized schedule, more enjoyable work, a healed body, or a better government. We need to hear Jesus' words. We need him to see us, gather us, and speak to us. And we can have that. We have it sitting under our chairs right now or in our laps. The word more fully confirmed. We live in the age of the ear. We don't yet see all the things that God's doing. We live in the age of the ear. Faith comes by hearing, but one day our faith will become sight. So let's not be enamored so much as much about the things we see as the things we hear from the voice of the word. Jesus' people need him to see them, to gather them, to speak to them. And then ultimately, what does he speak to them? He blesses them. What a kind Savior, what a kind King, what a good rabbi, what a loving God. Consider the very first things that come out of Jesus' mouth as he assesses the situation. What do they need to hear? They need to hear all the ways they're getting it wrong. Well, they're going to hear that. (laughs) We'll get through the sermon. He's not going to leave that out. But the very first word that comes out of his mouth to his people is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then it moves from the third person into the first person. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What sweet words. That's the opening line here. This is what his people most need, is they need their king to bless them, to comfort them, to draw them near. Jesus sees the crowds and all their dysfunction, all their hypocrisy, all their sin, all their lack of intelligence and everything else, and he draws them with grace. Jesus gathers them up to speak to them. He opens his mouth. Doesn't start with a withering critique, a blistering conversa- a confrontation. Doesn't blast his enemies. Doesn't mock the political system like he would be a terrible Twitter follower or Twitterer, right? Because it's all about burn stuff down, right? That's what gets clicks and likes and views. But the way of Jesus comes with, blessed are the poor in spirit. If you recognize how broken you are, how sinful you are, congratulations, you get the kingdom. Nine different times, Jesus blesses them, leading with blessing and grace. Jesus sits them down. He sees them. He sits down. He gathers them around, and he speaks blessings. And this tells us a little bit about him. One, he's God because he can say things like, your reward is great in heaven. Uh, You get the kingdom. Uh, you get righteousness if this, like, he is exercising authority. 
but he does so with a posture of grace. And we often don't see those two as going together, right? We don't want anyone telling us to do or exercising authority. Authority is always bad. In the Bible, that's not the case. In the Garden of Eden, the very first lie was that authority is bad, right? That if there is someone giving me commands, they must not be for my good. And so I must resist. I am my own person. I am independent. And one of the things that the gospel does is we now become dependent on the king and we see authority as a good thing and a gracious thing, especially when it's the hands of someone who's perfect and eternal, right? He has the authority to give these things, and so he does. We also hear this when we think of God. When God created in Genesis 1, if you guys remember way back in the day when we preached through Genesis chapter 1, listen to these words. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Very first words humanity ever heard was this. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the field and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the ground, behold, that has the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. He gives them grace and he blesses them. And so now we have Jesus, God in the flesh, coming. He sees his people in all their dysfunction. He blesses them. If you have these dispositions, if you have this sort of heart towards me, blessed are you because you'll get the kingdom. You'll get the new and better Garden of Eden, the new earth. What's fascinating about this, uh, if you go back a slide there for a second, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes form a chiasm. Chiasm is a Hebrew way of rhyming where the first and the last lines rhyme, and then it works its way down to the middle. It's almost like going up a mountain and coming back down. And so what you'll see is that the beginning of the chiasm and the end are all about what? The kingdom of heaven. Jesus opens by saying, here's what the kingdom's like and you can have it. Right? And then the values of the kingdom match up. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the pure in heart. And then right in the middle, chiasm is always focusing, narrowing you in to the peak of the mountain, to the, to the center point. If you're hungry for righteousness, you'll get it. And if you're desiring mercy, you can get it. So it's all about a kingdom of heaven that is based on righteousness and mercy, right? The Beatitudes are going to set the tone for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. It's all an unpacking of these values that are in Christ's kingdom. These blessings form a chiasm kingdom from beginning to end. The high point in the middle is about righteousness through mercy the first four deal with one's passive internal dis disposition towards, towards God, your brokenness over your sin before God, and your need for Him to do the work that you can't do. It's salvation by grace in the first four. And then the second four deal with one's active external disposition towards others. You love God and you love others. You've received righteousness and grace on the inside. You now display righteousness and grace to others. It sounds like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 when you look at these eight beatitudes. For by grace you've been saved through faith, poor in spirit, mourning your sin, meek, not comparing yourself to others, not trying to get out of it, and hungering for righteousness that you don't have, salvation. Grace, you've been saved through grace. By, 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But, second four Beatitudes, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works to our neighbor, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Beatitudes masterfully pull Old Testament themes. We'll look at them next week where he's pulling these Old Testament things where in the Old Testament we've heard poor in spirit, we've heard mourn, we've heard meek, we've heard these promises, and Jesus weaves them all together in this beautiful uh, picture, this beautiful blessing of Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes, in a sense, reassign the price tags of everything in the world. Who values mourning? Uh, the king does, and he's going to comfort it, right? Who values meekness? It's not the meek that inherit the earth. It's the people who are bombastic and take the bull by the horns, right? But not in the kingdom. He switches the price tags. You ever thought about that, kids? I used to think about that as a kid. This would be awesome if I took this really expensive thing and put like a little tiny price tag on it and then took it up to the counter. Ha ha, I get it for a dollar. You know, like it's, but the kingdom is upside down. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to give us a kingdom where the things that are despised in the world's kingdom all of a sudden have tremendous value. And the things that have a lot of value in this kingdom, in the world's kingdom, don't have any transfer. So we have to exchange currency. We have to exchange out of the world's currency and exchange into the kingdom currency. We have to become like this and not like what the world says. It's a bit like when the Civil War ended, all of that Confederate currency was about to be worthless. And so before it becomes worthless, exchange it for American dollars, right? We all have been trading in worldly currency, and it's about to come to an end. We have a short window of time to exchange that for true currency in the kingdom before it's too late, before everything in our hand is worthless. Everything we own, everything we've tried to achieve apart from the kingdom is going to be gone. But we have an opportunity to switch it, to use our resources, to use our time, to flip it. Seek first the kingdom of heaven, his righteousness. Trade it in for heavenly currency like mourning, poorness of spirit, peacemaking. Change currency before it loses its value, before it's worthless. We have the opportunity to do that. Let me conclude. So let us not forget as we go through the Sermon on the Mount that every word of it comes from a good and gracious king who came for his people. That every single word is because he sees us, he sees his people, he gathers them, and he speaks words to them, the words that they need, even the hard ones, even the ones that are going to confront us. Let's not divorce the king and the kingdom, life in the kingdom from the king who will make it, make us able to be there. Let's never divorce it from the context of Jesus gathering in grace his people and speaking with grace to his people. Some have said about this Sermon on the Mount that there's not one ounce of grace in the whole sermon. And I would disagree. I think you're taking it out of its context and you're divorcing it from the person who spoke it and the intentions of his heart, which is compassion. So let's, as we're tempted to think this is not a very gracious sermon, let's remember who's preaching it and why he came and the context that he's giving this to people who really are broken like us. And he really does bring them into this kind of kingdom. So I've got a slide up here with just a couple of takeaways. Let us receive this sermon gratefully from the good king who sees us, knows us, and has gathered us together. And let us receive this sermon humbly from the gracious king who gives us exactly the words of blessing that we need, which is a call to repent and believe in him, to trust in him, to be humbled before him. My friends, when you think of Jesus, do you think of one who sees you as you are? Who doesn't push you away but gathers you to himself? 
even in your sin, desiring to gather you to himself and to cleanse you of that sin? Do you understand that this Jesus is filled with compassion for you and speaks to you a word that will confront you, but ultimately is a blessing that will make you right and whole and will transform you? This is the kind of kingdom who has come. This is the kind of king who's come. This is the kind of kingdom that he is going to introduce us to over the summer, and we have the pleasure of responding to it, of entering it by faith. What a wonderful gift. So I want to give us just a moment to respond to this question right here. Have you drawn near, like those people, drawn near by faith to the good and gracious king who sees and gathers, speaks and blesses his people? Maybe for the first time you've, you're not a Christian, you know you're not a Christian, you've never drawn near, now would be an opportunity for you to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and come into his kingdom. Maybe those of us that had done that a while ago, maybe we need to just be reminded and refreshed in our minds of what kind of king we're actually serving and how gracious and kind he really is, that he does see us. He knows us. He gathers us on purpose, even now this morning. And he speaks the words that we need, words of blessing. If we've come to him, we are blessed. We have his favor. We have his, we have his grace. And so let's just take a moment to respond to that. Even now, there's prayer cards that are around if you want to write out a prayer, um, whatever you want to do for this next minute. But let's just take a moment in silence to respond to what we've heard and draw near to this king. Lord Jesus, we come to you in awe of, of who you are, that you laid aside the, the glories of heaven to come to earth, to take on human flesh, to live a very humble life, to subject yourself to all the sufferings and struggles of human existence in a fallen world, and that you came for people that you went to those who were unworthy, you went to those who were sinners, and you called them. You called them to repent, to believe in the kingdom, to draw near by faith, to not try to clean themselves up in order to make themselves worthy of coming forward. You saw them exactly as they were. You saw them in ways that they didn't even see themselves, and you gathered them. And then you spoke words to them, words of comfort and blessing, words that would transform them, words that would actually dislodge the affections for sin, words of grace that would actually turn their hearts away from evil and towards you. And Lord, we thank you that you are that same Jesus who sees us, all of our mess, everything we've ever done, every thought, everything. And yet you are not repulsed by us, but gather us near. And then you speak the words of life to us. We thank you that your word gives life. We thank you for whoever it was that spoke it, the gospel to us, that, and, and it came alive all of a sudden. Maybe it was the hundredth time we heard it. Maybe it was the first time we heard it, but these words brought life with them. It brought us from death and hell and sin to life and righteousness and the kingdom. And God, may we also see people as you see them. May we be willing to not push them away but draw them close to us even if it makes us a little uncomfortable to be so near someone so broken and sinful, at least in our eyes, Lord, help us to be humble in that and help us to speak your words to them. That there is a God in heaven who loves them, who died to make them holy, died to make them right. And, and so, Lord, I pray that we would be good representations of you. 
Uh, but most importantly, Lord, we pray that you draw us to yourself and that these words would be our words. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.